Hello, welcome again to another episode of the Let Fuel Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gant. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Today, I'm delighted to bring to you a bonus episode that I recently recorded with the Immigration Guy podcast. You've got to go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it's with Kyle Farmer, who is a lawyer. He's a, just a great guy overall. We had a great conversation about immigration, but also a lot of other things, uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy, wages. But we do focus in a lot on immigration and how a lot of it's like trade and other things about voluntary transactions, how there are rules in place that are needed. You know, rules of law are very important. But at the same time, we need to make sure that people are meeting their needs, that labor shortages are being met and things of that nature. So there's a lot of things that go into that. And so we really try to break it down as much as possible. You can go check out his podcast, The Immigration Guy, or you can find it here at the Let Fuel Prosper podcast. Wherever you find your podcast, please go and get it, subscribe. Um, and I appreciate you doing so. And please share it as well with your friends and family. That would be great. But without further ado, here is the episode with Kyle Farmer, The Immigration Guy. Welcome back to The Immigration Guy. Today, we're sitting down with Vance Ginn, an accomplished economist who champions free market solutions. He's the founder and president of Ginn Economic Consulting, host of the Let People Prosper Show podcast, chief economist of Pelican Institute for Public Policy, and senior fellow of Americans for Tax Reform, and, and a lot more. Welcome, Vance, and thank you for making time to join our show today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, Kyle, thanks so much. I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. So it's uh, let's have at it. <laughs> <laughs> as a little disclosure, I have met Vance before, had a chance to talk to him, always find everything he says extremely enlightening, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm really excited about this one. Hey, y'all. This is The Immigration Guy with Kyle Farmer. Can you just go ahead and tell the listeners about your background and how you got into economics? Yeah, sure, Kyle. I mean, it's been a um, it's it's been a journey. Grew up in in South Houston, single mom, and went to a small private school for a couple of years, and then went to a public school for a couple of years, and then homeschool. So I kind of went through all the major schooling systems. First generation college student, uh, went to San Jack, a junior college there for a couple of years, and then went to Texas Tech, got my PhD in economics. I was a drummer for a while in a hard rock band. Kind of turned my life around. I was in a serious car accident when I was twenty. Life flight at a Herman Hospital in Houston and kind of thought about, you know, where the heck's my life going? And uh, I, I changed it around and, and it felt God's calling was to let people prosper. And uh, what for me, and and I that's what I've been working on now. And so I started working at the Texas Public Policy Foundation for about a decade. I worked at the White House, which we can talk about that with the Trump administration. Uh, for the chief, I was chief economist for the Office of Management and Budget. Went back to Texas. I was like, you know, when COVID hit and everything, Kyle I was like, man, I got to get back home. So we came back. I had two kids at the time. Now I've got three. And so we moved back to, to Round Rock, Texas, where I live. And, um, and then I worked at Texas Public Policy Foundation for a while and then thought, you know what, let me start my own thing. So I started again economic consulting last October. And then I worked with the Pelican Institute in Louisiana, Americans for Tax Reform up in DC, um, and Te Texans for Fiscal Responsibility in Texas and a number of other groups. Because ultimately, what my goal is, Kyle, is like to use kind of where I grew up in my institutional framework of economics and, and free market economics of looking at the Austrian school and the Chicago school and public choice economics, and try to piece all these things together to ultimately get government out of the way as much as possible and, and let people have the freedom to do what they want to do and, and, and make sure that they can prosper the most that they can. And so I'm blessed each and every day, Kyle. And it was a pleasure meeting you before. And I'm looking forward to our, our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the, I love the idea of drummer to economist. I love yeah. how, I love how you talk about that. It's just so funny to think about. It's like, okay, you could have gone down one of these two roads. You're either going to have a body full of tattoos or become an economist. Right. Those are, those are, those are quite different. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And I think I told you, like, I used to dye my hair black and have like tips. I had 10 gauge earrings in both ears. I got a couple tats, you know, going on, but, but nothing you can really see. And, and so it's, it's all part of that. I guess that growing up, you know, what I yeah. like to say is I'll take, talk to groups. I think you and I talked about this is like, I know other people are perfect, which, which isn't true. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, right. Other people that's are perfect, right. but that was not me. And it took some big slaps in the face saying, Vance, you know, it's time to wake up and, and finally, I, I woke up, and, and, and now I'm here today. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It, it, I, I think that this is. It's really cool your mentality towards what causes an economy to thrive, or I guess a, a thriving society, which is a lot more hands off than I think a lot of people would realize. But to, can you kind of talk talk about that? Why do you think that 
free market solutions are vital to a, to a thriving economy. Yeah, I think it goes into a lot of my studies over time and, and reading a lot of uh, Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom that really got me on this track of classical liberal thinking, getting government out of the way, letting people have the most liberty, private property rights, and that way they can prosper uh, on their own from a bottom-up approach of capitalism versus a top-down approach where you have kings, dictators, politicians leading the way through socialism and communism and things of that nature. It just doesn't work. And we've seen that throughout, throughout history. But when you also start to dig into it a little bit deeper, why is that? Well, I I really come at it from kind of the Hayekian sort of view, Frederick von Hayek, which he talked about the knowledge problem. A, a small group of people, whether they're politicians or certain leaders, they, they will never have enough information as it's in the marketplace. And a big part of that is through the profit and loss system that we have in capitalism uh, of, of prices. Those direct the resources, kind of like what Adam Smith talked about in The Invisible Hand, uh, or with The Invisible Hand in his Wealth of the Wealth of Nations in 1776, he talked about, look, there's not someone directing, like we're puppets, of how yep. our activity is going to be. It's really coming from the marketplace, like an invisible hand, and then that directs the resources where they should go. And I think when you start piecing all this together, Kyle, is that that really seems... To work. And, and it also, if, if you look around the people that you know who have succeeded and those who maybe haven't succeeded as much, I won't necessarily call them failures because I've failed a lot, man. I mean, and I learned <laughs> from those failures along the way. And I think failure is a big part of, uh, of, of an economic system of, of the way that God created us is that we're going, yeah. we, you know, none of us are perfect. Jesus Christ, the only one, right? And, and yeah. so as we're looking at all these things, I, I really think that it's important for us to have that freedom and flexibility. And when you look at countries that have the lack of freedom, like North Korea, like like China and, and others, it's very difficult to move up. Venezuela yeah. is another one, right? Especially those that are in poverty. And so I think another thing that I, that I really think is important, Kyle, is that we kind of know it provides prosperity. The problem is we don't always know what, what, is, what creates poverty. And, and that's why I think there's such a focus on poverty is because it comes from many, many ways. Um, and, and, and what I hope to do is to allow for the neediest among us to have the most tools, the most opportunity to prosper. And, 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 I, and I really believe that that's by getting government out of the way because those individuals know what's best for them. We yeah. may not always like their choices all the time, but I do think that they act rationally given the information they have at the time, and then they're going to prosper in whatever way they see fit. And that allows for families and communities to help each other instead of a top-down government approach trying to bail everybody out. Yeah, yeah, and I love what you talk about whenever you talk about that the man at the top never having enough information or as much information as the people that are kind of on the ground floor. And it's funny because whenever, if you think about like just in your life, no matter no matter who's listening, if you think about it in your life and what you do, can you imagine that in your life that your government officials actually understand the complexities of your business as much as you do? And but this no. is what's hilarious. This is what's hilarious to me. It's like so I I recognize that in immigration, I I think I could talk to every single congressman. None of them have any, any idea what they're talking about. And I mean, maybe some of them would have like some minuscule idea of it, but they, they wouldn't really understand the implications of, of immigration. They wouldn't really understand how the puzzle pieces play together. They don't get it. They, they get their talking points, that's it. And, but it, what's really interesting to me is I think it's extremely common for people to recognize that in their own life, but then to assume about other things with, that are not in their life, that the government does know about those things. And to mm. me, that's just the most ironic thing in the world. It's like, no, I know they don't know anything about immigration, but they probably know everything about healthcare. I'm like, probably not. Yeah. Like, why would you assume that? It, it, it's crazy right. to me. It, it, it is crazy. And I mean, even you, you ask a doctor that, that's in healthcare, they're not going to know everything about healthcare either. Um, yeah. you know, you're, you, you know, you know a lot about Im immigration, but there are probably some things that you're not going to know. Right. Um, I know a lot about the, a lot. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you don't know even more to the point on a micro level, we don't know what every one of those migrants, what they've been yeah. through yeah. And, and we don't know why they're moving the way they are. I mean, I, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. Look, I, I'm a Texan through and through. I, I grew up in Houston. I went to school in Lubbock. I moved. I also forgot I taught, I taught at Sam Houston for a couple of years. And then we moved to Round Rock. Like I, when I moved to Virginia for a year to work at the White House, we were in McLean, Virginia. I remember looking at my first tax bill and seeing state taxes. And I'm like, what is this? You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. And, and, but, but I, I, I mentioned that because 
think about all the people that are just moving to Texas from California. I mean, it would be a lot for me to take my three kids and my wife and, and for us to decide to move to an entire state to live. That is a big decision to make. Now make it even a to step back. Think about somebody that's leaving their country, everything that they've known and try to move to somewhere else and then try to figure out how a politician should know exactly what this person's been through and why they're moving here and everything else that they can't have all that information. I mean, I, I am a classical liberal in the sense that I'm not an anarcho-capitalist or an anarchist. Like I do believe in rule of law. I, need, I believe in you know certain roles for government, but we've also got to consider that those rules are just like, you know, they're like setting the, the bounds of the game. Like here, here's, here's the football field. This is the area you need to play, but I'm not going to know every play that's going to need to be played. And, and unfortunately, yeah. too many politicians and a lot from really the left and the right, Kyle, are starting to believe that they know what's best. And, and I think that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that maybe the, the politician perspective on migrants is – and I think it's a relatively rational perspective is I, I'm not making policy for them. I'm making policy because of them. And so and I could see how that would be, that would be their perspective saying, I work for the American people. I don't work for the migrant. And yeah. so I, I don't really care what they've gone through. Although, you know, that's definitely not my perspective, but I, I'm just saying that I, I think that that's a rational perspective. It's just, yeah, no, I, I think that it's kind of crazy. So, but you're, I think that what I would, I'd be interested to hear kind of what your position is on, immigration just broadly. I know that you're a free market guy. It, it, well, it's, it's interesting because I'm going to say I'm a free market guy. And then some will see, well, hey, but you worked in the Trump administration and the Trump administration was pretty hardcore when it comes to shutting down the border, maybe not having as many immigrants come in, putting more uh, quotas on the number of people that are coming to America. And so some would say, but do your views align? And, you know, I'll be I'll be frank. I, I didn't always I didn't agree with a lot of the policies that were being promoted from the administration. And, and you got a lot of one, one thing that people don't get on the outside is that inside there is a lot of discussion. There are a lot of people who, who agree and disagree about things. I, I was one who I, I want more immigration. I, I want us to reform the system versus just shutting people out. I, I'm one who wants more free trade versus tariffs. You know what I mean? But you had these debates that were going on. And so when I come at it from immigration is I would go back to the marketplace. The marketplace is nothing more than an institution where you have voluntary exchanges of people that have that 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 are exchanging because they're both going to benefit from that exchange. Mm. Immigration is it can be a little bit different. It can be thought of a little bit differently because I mean you have someone, you have a rule of law, you have a border. And so there needs to be rules in place of people that are going and coming. We should know who those people are. And so I get the idea that we should shut down the border first, put up a border wall so that way you know who's coming in and out. The problem with that though is the you know, so that's the scene, right? Going back to Bastiat, uh, the scene, but the unseen is is that you have a lot of incentive to go to, to find a way in other ways, like the black market. You have more coyotes who are going to find ways to go around that wall and take more risk for those people that are coming and going. And, and so without visa reform, which I think we need something that's more free market oriented to where you allow the prices. And we used to have this like in the 80s to where the visas were, were basically purchased by the business and the business would bring people over in order for those exchanges to happen. And then that would allow us to know who's, who's coming and going. It would allow for us to hold people accountable, the businesses and the individuals and everything else. And I think that it would allow for us to meet the demands that are here in the United States for Im immigrants. Um, yeah. and, and, and just one step back here, too, is that I think that you know, I, there are a lot of misconceptions about immigration, that they're going to come in and take all of our jobs, that they're going to lower wages. And the economic facts of this, when you look at the research is, is that it's just not true that that immigrants, that there's not just one labor market. We like to think about yeah. it. Oh, it's the labor market of the U.S. And so they come in, they increase supply um, that, that could have some trade offs with the Americans that are here. And if you increase supply compared to demand, the wages would fall. But that's false that there's not just one labor market. There are many labor markets, just like you and I, Kyle, have different experiences, different skill sets, we're not going to be really competing for the same job, the same market. Right. And that's the same thing when you look at immigrants um, who maybe speak very little English or, or the ones that have a high amount of skill that are going to universities. Those are very different folks. And so you have to really look at who they're actually competing with in those markets. And also remember, so let's say that you do take low skill workers and you think about the ones that are coming from Ecuador or somewhere else uh, of north into Texas. 
they're mostly going to be competing with low skilled, less experienced uh, Americans. And so that will increase the supply, could put downward pressure on their on their wages. But think about this too. What do they buy? They mostly buy those goods and get those services from those who are low skill because they're cheaper. So that increases demand. So you actually yeah. don't see that much of a decrease in wages or a decrease in jobs because of the market fundamentals that happen and people overlook that part of it. That's interesting. Yeah, I've actually, I don't know if I've ever heard someone talk about the demand side of it. That That's really interesting. Yeah. And whenever I think about, so there are still a lot of visas where basically the, the employer is paying the government to bring in these people. Uh, so H2A and H2B are common examples of that. And yeah, it, for, from from my perspective, I think that the really big limitation there is on H2B, there's a numeric cap. You know, mm. they statutory 66,000. You've got hundreds of thousands of applications for those particular roles uh, over the course of the year. So extremely competitive. And but to me, the statutory, the statutory cap doesn't make any logical sense because of the the, the requirement. And so th this is what the argument is for a statutory cap is exactly what you just said. I don't want downward pressure on the domestic labor market to cause negative implications on the, the local wages, depressing local wages. But that doesn't make any logical sense because to actually go through the process, you have to test the labor market. Most of these visas have a requirement that you hire any able, willing, and qualified U.S. applicants to actually apply for the position. And so and we have a very clear issue right now that I don't foresee getting better where we have a large gap of supply and demand for those lower wage positions, those lower, those lower skill positions. People just don't want the jobs here anymore. And so I think that at some point there will have to be some reform where – and maybe it isn't you know, permanent immigration. Like maybe, maybe it's not people actually coming here on a green card and staying here for good because I could see in that circumstance where if they were here for good and they weren't annually testing the labor market, where you might inadvertently have too big of an influx of supply of that labor so that when the economy comes down, there would just be too many people able to perform those job functions, which would cause the, the, the wage – but of course, I, that's also probably neglecting the demand side that you just mentioned a second ago. Uh, but regardless, it, if you're annually testing the, the labor market for non-immigrant visas, I don't understand the logic behind a numerical cap. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like this artificial constraint on economic productivity. Yeah. I agree. I, and, and again, it goes back to that knowledge problem. How do we know that 66,000 is the right number? Oh, that's, we don't. Yeah, that's arbitrary. Yeah, it's arbitrary, man. And, and so, you know, I think that we should allow for the marketplace to work. And, and to your point, and, and you made this point, you kind of corrected it, is we don't know the demand side. So as as you have that increase in supply, that also means that we're increasing. Remember that uh, production possibilities frontier in economics, you're starting to push out the production possibilities because of those individuals that are working, the capital that's going to be provided as well. And, and so we're also increasing on the demand side, new innovations that we otherwise wouldn't have had. And, and so I think, you know, it, it kind of gets into this uh, scarcity mindset and, and, and scarcity is important. Uh, there wouldn't be economics if there wasn't scarcity. Maybe in heaven, we won't yeah. need it. Hopefully uh, you're right. <laughs> um, oh, you're going to be out of work here, in heaven. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which is good. Which is good. <laughs> You're going to be a drummer um, again. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Hopefully I can play some drums, you know, rock out <laughs> there. <laughs> um, but, but, but I think that, you know, we've got to look at the unseen again, all the things that could come about. And one other thing that came to mind as you were talking about that is there's always this thought about the demand of safety nets from those immigrants. And that's been a big concern. You know, even Milton Friedman said, we can't have um, open borders or free immigration until we get rid of the social safety net system. And, and there's part of that's true. But as, as you know, and you'll know more than I do about that, is that um, most of those who are coming here illegally, um, not the, the proper route or anything, um, they won't have access to those safety nets. Um, so yeah. th they're not even access, able to access those. It may be the first, the, the, the next generation or the generation after that actually can or do, but many of them are also entrepreneurial, which goes back to my point is that they came here looking for a better life. Yeah. Some are refugees leaving for you know certain reasons, but many of them are taking big risks in order to come here and they're willing to make the sacrifice to not only do that, 
but then to sacrifice their time and effort in order to create new things and do other things that are out there that, you know, are, you know, it's questionable whether about Americans want to do it or not. And maybe if the price was right, if the price was high enough, they would do it. But with minimum wage laws rising to $15 an hour in California and other places, it's, it's pricing out a lot of the Americans from doing those jobs. So there's going to continue to be demand for the lower skilled labor of those coming um, here illegally and otherwise to pan underneath the table. I mean, they're, they're forcing these sort of actions in place. And, and so I think when you put into all these different perspectives, there. This is a reason why those the the number the sixty six thousand just doesn't match and, and and how do we know that those are the right people? I would argue we don't and and that's why you need a marketplace to really start to set the stage um, for for like the HB you know one and two visas maybe that's a better route. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it though too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that it. I think that it likely is. So one of the things that I think about whenever it comes to illegal immigration is. Yeah. So if I were the the immigration czar and I could do exactly what I wanted, I would have extremely strong borders and and I would have extremely strong borders, but ways to get here lawfully through things like employment sponsored visas. Uh, And the reason is because with weak borders, it, it, it is the people that you think are benefiting from that. That not you specifically, but general, people yeah. more generally think that are benefiting from that are actually the ones being exploited. So, mm, yeah, whenever you've got a weak border, that opens up opportunities for drug cartels, for example, to engage in human trafficking, sex trafficking, all sorts of horrible crimes against humanity because the migrants think this is my chance. I got to get in. Mm. And so, if it were me, I would say, no, we're going to have extremely strong stances against illegal immigration, but have options for people to come over here in larger volume for employment sponsored reasons or otherwise. Uh, and I, I think that that's just kind of, kind of both sides of that. Like you, I think yeah. that you get the benefit of something like H2B where you're able to, to bring in people to perform a bunch of job functions that I think that people generally do not want. And I've tried, we've tried advertising jobs for significantly higher than what the uh, average wage is in that particular area. You still don't. It's not like you still have a flood of American applicants applying for these positions. They they generally just don't want them. But there are people that do, and it's like I. It just it it, it kind of blows my mind that we're pretty short sighted in that way. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting too. Kind of moving to the future is what happens when some of the younger millennials, I'm right at the edge of the older millennials uh, in '81. That's when I was born, 1981. But then Gen Z, you know, they're they're not wanting to work as early as even millennials did. And so there is, how is that going to influence the labor market? I think it's going to shake up the labor market a lot. And it's going to put more of an emphasis on the need for, for immigrants in, in the U.S. And, and um, yeah. you know, leg- legally, right? I think we both agree with that and find ways to, to do that because that will be important. Also, when you look at the birth rate um, in the United States, it's been falling. And so that means the turnover, um, the replacement rate, uh, is, is not going to be as fast. And so therefore you have all these baby boomers and everything else that are retiring. That's going to put pressure on our safety net system, social security, Medicare. So we're going to need, we're going to need taxpayers at some point, unless yeah. we make some major reforms, which we, we should make some reforms yeah. of those as well for long-term solvency for our country. But you're also going to need the workforce to grow an economy, to meet the demands of the people. And, and so all these things are coming together to where, you know, one reason why Japan has had the loss two or nearly three decades now of lack of economic growth and everything else is because they didn't have this replacement rate, because yeah. they didn't have the immigration. And, and that has slowed their economy tremendously. China is already getting into the situation, too, because of their one-child policy for so long. We've got to be careful about taking on these things that haven't worked and repeating them again. Yeah, yeah. Except for in our case, it's uh, voluntarily. We're just... yeah. Not having babies. I'm doing my True. part. I've got I've got four kids. My oldest one's yeah. six. I'm doing what I can. I just there you we, go. We, we I've got the three. So that's seven right there. There we go. <laughs> we're, we're making it happen. <laughs> no, I, I I always appreciate these conversations because you know immigration. I, I will say is like I'm I'm not an expert in all the legal parts of it. I come at it from an economic perspective, but I think it it is so important because of the way that it influences the labor market, the economy public policy, like there's, there's so many moving parts to it that, that, that makes it, um, for one thing, interesting <laughs> compared with yeah. some other things that are out there, but it, but it's also something that we're seeing more and more tension of, which I, which is one reason why I'm somewhat optimistic that we will get some reforms, hopefully good reforms. But I think that there's this push to do something. It's kind of like 
trade, right? Like you know, there's a lot of tension about trade, international trade with other countries. And, and a lot of the, the, the marketplace or the economics behind it are very similar with trade and immigration um, because it's dealing with not only the supply, because they'll say, oh, the, the supply coming from another country at production takes away jobs in the manufacturing sector in the United States. But you have to remember, again, the demand side. And, and, and what was actually driving that for manufacturing? Really, was it the offshoring, the outsourcing, the the movement to China and other places of of those of those jobs of those factories, or was it because of increased productivity of technological change and innovation that made it to where they didn't need as many workers? Because we're still increasing manufacturing has still been going up for a long time. It's just the number of workers and the share of the labor force has been going down. We we have to make sure that we have a full picture. And not just use, like as you mentioned earlier, the talking points of politicians. We have yeah. to have a full picture, and I hope that's what you know we're able to, to highlight here today. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting on on trade. Can you kind of talk through why you are against tariffs generally? I mean, because you're you're pretty much an anti-tariff guy, right? You just yeah, you don't want, you don't want tariffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so my even more principled approach, uh, my view, principled approach to taxation is that taxes. Are, were created to only fund limited government. That should be the only reason we use taxes. Like, I don't like the idea of Pigouvian taxes to try to change people's behavior when it comes to climate change or gas. You know, the gas tax is it, the reason why it's in place is to disincentivize you from driving as much while also. Um, helping pay for the roads in order to pay for that tax. But if the roads are so important, then just have the government spending, have the budget prioritize the roads and use a broad-based tax to pay for it because those user fees are often not directly connected with what they're paying for. It should be theoretically, but the gas tax, you know, in Texas, the gas tax, 25% of it goes to education. It doesn't even go to transportation. (laughs) So, So like, how are those connected? Oh, well, because people are taking their kids to school, but they're also taking them to other places. Well, yeah. why does, how does that, how does that matter? The, the real reason, right, Kyle, is that they just want more money for education. So yeah, they'll go after any of the, yeah, man. It's, that's, I think that's what we see is that they'll find ways to just grow government instead of actually doing something that changes the behavior in that particular market. So for example, when the tariffs by the Trump administration were put on China, the trade deficit, it went down a little bit, but not a lot. And, and that was a big push was like saying the reason why we're doing this is because of some of the intellectual um, private property and uh, and some other things that were going on and how, how they're dumping for steel. So there were these steel tariffs and things of that nature. And, and there are some issues there. Um, there's also a lot of human rights issues that are in China as well that I think are atrocious. And I, I, you know, I think that there are some issues we need to look at. But the tariffs themselves did not change the dynamics of how those actions take place. So when you look again, going back to the market, you only have a market exchange whenever two individuals uh, are going to mutually benefit from that exchange voluntarily. So whenever I want to buy something from China, I'm not exchanging with China. I'm exchanging with a Chinese person that's there, right? Just like I'm yeah. an American. Now, the Chinese government might get a piece of that and they, you know, they got their whole communist system. But we've got to remember that somebody is benefiting on the other side of that exchange. Um, and so when you start breaking that up, because tariffs are nothing more than a tax on us in America, as we're importing that good, like a phone or something else, we're paying a higher cost to import it from that country. So we are bearing the brunt of that tax, not yeah. China. There may be some changes in the way that they're producing things because of that that tax or the reduction in demand, um, but we don't really see that. The other thing here, Kyle, is that it also influences exchange rates. <laughs> and so, when you put this tariff in place, the idea would be that you would import less, so you would send fewer dollars that way, so more dollars would stay in the United States, so you appreciate the dollar. That that appreciation of the dollar, which did happen under the Trump administration, was about the same rate with which the tariff rate was. So it really didn't reduce the cost because you could just, the, 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 the dollar value just increased. So you purchased more. And that's why yeah. we didn't see, or a reason why we didn't see the decrease in the deficit. And so again, you know, taxes should be used in my view to socially engineer people's behavior. And I think that's what tariffs do. That's what a carbon tax would do. Essentially, if I boiled it all down, my main form of taxation that I would like to see is the sales tax. The sales yep. tax still engineers society a little bit in the sense that it disincentivizes you to consume, but incentivizes people in the sense to save. 
savings and in, 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 in increases investment, which grows the economy. And so that allows for more economic growth in that sense, even though I wouldn't do it for that purpose. But, but I also like a sales tax in the sense that it's a voluntary transaction. When yes. I go to buy that Snickers bar, which actually sounds really good right now, if I go to buy that <laughs> Snickers bar, I'll, I'll, I'll pay tax on the Snickers or buy you know certain things, I'll buy the, the tax, but it's my voluntary decision to make that transaction. It's another reason yeah. why I don't like property taxes. Like you're taxing me for my property, even though you already own it. And, 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 and as we know, you're really just holding on to your property. The government owns yeah. it. We're just yeah. renting from the government uh, right. until we yeah. get rid of property taxes, which is, as you know, I've been working a lot on in Texas and, and everything, but, 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 Coming back to it all, you know, Kyle, I think that there are a lot of relationships between trade and immigration, that there are just a lot of misconceptions about what that market is really doing. And then we use talking points by politicians to go after others. And I've said this before, too, but, you know, uh, when you're pointing at others like China or the immigrants, you've got three more fingers that are pointing back at you. And we've got to get our own house in order before we can start telling others about these things. And I think that's why we need to have right to work states. We need to cut the corporate income tax. We need to cut government spending and regulations so that way we have more opportunity to do things here in America. Yeah, yeah. What would you say to someone that suggested that the purpose of the tariff is not to equalize competition, but more so as a punitive measure for the receiving end of that tariff. Yeah, and, and the, the first answer would be, well, the, the, the punitive part of that is actually the American because we're the ones that pay the tax. But, but let's also say that we want to go after China in some way to hurt their economy, to not have them as much economic output and be dependent on them. I, I think that's really where a lot of this comes from. Um, I think a better way to do it is to expand free trade with our allies, reduce yeah. the cost of trading with places like Taiwan, you know, I, I was actually really in favor of the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, that, you know, Trump came in and basically stopped it. And, I, I, and maybe there was good reason for that. I wasn't in the Trump administration at that time. I was there from June 2019 to May of 2020 during COVID, which, you know, we could talk about some of that where I was in the Situation Room and stuff there. But, but, but the idea was, is that we would need to go after China to break up some of that dependency and everything. But they came in and said, well, let's break up the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Because the Obama administration, in their view, through fast track authority and everything else, which basically gave the executive branch to make the decisions and then give it over to Congress, they're like, look, it's going to be a bad deal. And that that may be true, actually, right? Like, I don't know. I don't trust the, what the Obama administration was going to do. But instead <laughs> of throwing out the TPP, why not renegotiate a good deal? Uh, yeah. and, and make it to where we could have lowered the barriers for 12 countries that would have been in there, including the U.S. You, I think that could have been a lot better approach because what do you do then? You're putting pressure on China to appeal to those other countries that they're already doing business with. And if we get an agreement with all these other 11 countries, we would put more pressure on China for them to trade their to, to, to change their practices more so at a higher degree, more pressure than what I believe tariffs will ever be able to do. And, and, and by, force, by forcing them, incentivizing them in this, in this way, we would be in a better position militarily. Because I also think if you look at the facts of what happened, tariffs also created the trade war. Trade wars then create yeah. more oh, military yeah. buildup. It creates more war. And I, 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 I'm more libertarian in a lot of ways. I want more peace and prosperity, right? And, and so I think if we can have more freedom of trade with those other allies, we'll be in a much better position to deal with China later on and Russia and others than going after them with taxes. Yeah. So what, what, if, what, what if the position is, it, it's actually kind of like a multifaceted position here. I want to impose tariffs because I want to do it as a punitive measure to that other country. But at the same time, I want to incentivize, I buy because the, the punishment is actually felt by the person paying for the good or for the good. I want to incentivize them bringing that back and them mm. producing here and not making economic sense for them to continue to import it. But it takes time for them to build it out to where they're still forced to buy from whoever that foreign jurisdiction is. Because the, the the way that I'm kind of thinking about it is, you know, like with with innovation. With innovation, a lot of times it's on the back of rising labor costs. So labor costs get up so high that the cost of innovation is not, uh, or the, the cost of labor doesn't exceed the cost of innovation anymore. And so it's kind of, what I'm thinking is, is it not the same thing here with tariffs where you could make a similar argument? Yeah, I, I think there is an argument out there of 
how do we get more manufacturing here in the U.S.? And so if we raise the cost of doing it elsewhere through tariffs in this case, that that will incentivize more production here. But the, the facts don't bear that out just yet. Uh, I mean, because what did we do? Whenever, the, whenever those tariffs went in place in China, we just started buying it more from Taiwan, from Indonesia, from other low-cost countries. We bought, purchased them from them. There wasn't really a huge increase in production here in the United States. Now, there was an increase in production and flow of funds back from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which goes back to my point earlier. I think that really the focus should be that our taxes are too high in the United States. Um, the corporate tax, even at, so they lower, so the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Trump tax cuts of 2017, lowered the corporate income tax from 35%, which is the highest in the developed world, down to 21%, which is about the average then. But since 2017, a lot of the other major countries, the developed countries, are lowering their corporate income taxes. So we are actually getting, we're one of the highest again. And, and, and so by focusing on that, that would allow us to have more com competitive advantage, not just comparative advantage, but competitive advantage, because you have the lower cost along the way. And in doing so, that would increase the manufacturing base and everything else. It's one of the issues I have right now that with the Biden administration, and even some on the right, um, talking about industrial policy, like they're very quick about handing out sweetheart deals to businesses, the CHIPS Act, you know, trying to give all this money to these industrial policy. But it goes back to the point earlier about the knowledge problem. How do we know that we should be putting money into X? A big yeah. one right now that's been talked a lot about is broadband. I mean, we're, we're, there's billions of dollars now that are going to broad, broadband to provide 5G to rural areas across Texas. When those people move there, knowing that there wasn't 5G, many of yeah. them don't want it. And, and, and you're forcing this into, and, and I think that Starlink by uh, Musk is going to make all this, uh, you know, old time anyway. Yeah, yeah, relevant no, anyway. No, no. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I think that's what we should really be focused on, which is one reason why I was, you know, it was a blessing to work in the Trump administration because there was a huge focus on deregulation. The deregulation yeah. that happened was driving more economic growth because you're, again, you're getting government out of the way, kind of going full circle where we talked about earlier, getting government out of the way is so important. And when you overregulate, you overtax and you overspend, if you don't spend it, you don't need to tax the government spending. And if you don't spend it, you can't regulate it because there's not a bureaucracy that you're funding. And so that's why the ultimate burden of government is how much it spends, not by how much it taxes or anything like that. And if we can start getting back to actually the limited government instead of this nonsense that's going on today where we have, you know, Kyle, right now there's an expected $2 trillion in, in deficits for at least the next 10 years. Oh, so wait. it's every I, year. I, I saw President Biden tweet yesterday that he's lowered the deficit $1.2 trillion. Can you please walk us through that math? <laughs> well, it's bad math. Uh, first of all, I guess that's, that's some common core nonsense that's going on. So, so whenever you had during the, um, during COVID, uh, there were all these bills that were passed and, you know, the economy was sh shut down by governors and everything else. And so there was a lot of basically bailouts for individuals and maybe rightfully so. I think there's some arguments there because the government shut things down. So why shouldn't the yeah. government's uh, hand out, you know, help them out throughout this process. But the national debt increased by about $7 trillion since 2020 up to 30, nearly $33 trillion today. And so there were some massive increases in the deficit of over $3 trillion one year, I think it was 3.1 and then 2.8. And so then Biden comes in and in the fiscal year of 2020, 2021, 2020, yeah, 2021, it went down to, I think it was 2022, actually, it went down to 1.4 trillion. So it went from 2.8 to 1.4. And so he said he cut the deficit in half. Well, is, that was because a lot of those funding sources dried up. They're, they weren't sending out checks anymore. A lot of the safe, social safety nets, they weren't spending as much on that. And so it was really just inertia <laughs> that got that done. Because if you look at all of his policies, it was more government spending, and at that time, they hadn't raised any taxes, so the taxes weren't going to go up. And then you had the economy that was coming back, even though I think he slowed it down from his regulations and everything else. Um, you had more revenue coming in because the economy is just bouncing back from being shut down. So, no, he did not do any, any of that. And, and, you know, another thing he talks about is uh, President Biden talks about is, you know, look, there were 22 million jobs that were lost uh, over two oh, months. Yeah. Yeah. In March and April. And he's like, hey, I've, I've created all 12 million more jobs. <laughs> no, that was mostly just bounce back. If anything, you could say we're up 3 million jobs from the uh, the peak of February of 2020. So I guess you could talk about that. But the rest of these were just bounce back jobs from those who were going back to work. Yeah, I, I do. It is. Is it whenever he says the $1.2 trillion thing? Yeah. Is, is that not like having 
$50,000 in credit card debt and then anticipating that your credit card debt at the earth, you know, on a normal year, your credit card debt goes up $10,000. But this year it only went up $8,000. And so therefore you're saying I reduced my credit card debt. No, you didn't. You still no. added, you still added $8,000 to your credit card debt. You just didn't yeah. add 10. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And that's what they do. like to do a lot in, in, in government. I mean, even when I was there, you know, there was talk about, we, we found $4.6 trillion in the president's budget, but that was the last um, budget for under president Trump. But the issue is, is that there still was an increase in the deficit over that time. It's just that compared with the bait, what we call the baseline of how much it was actually, uh, how much we expected it to grow. There was $4.6 trillion in savings. And, and, and so they'd like to use this rhetoric. Oh, we're saving money. Well, you're not actually cutting it. You're just slowing it down a little bit or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think? Uh, just back on the tariff thing. Yeah. What do you think about this position? Cause I, I think with, with tariffs, this is probably the one that's got me the most convinced from a policy perspective, but I'm yeah. uh, very open to change on that. So that, I, I sympathize with the position of we want to disincentivize the purchasing of that good from that country from a national security perspective. So, for hmm. example, with uh, with chips, with computer chips or something like that, yeah. and where we we put them in everything, if we or or with pharmaceuticals, if we've got an over reliance on pharmaceuticals from one particular country, and we want to disincentivize that and incentivize our the domestic companies from buying elsewhere, do you think that that tariffs can be a good tool for that, or would you still say no? I, I'd still say no. Uh, you know, I would go. I would just go back to what are we doing in America? Why is it creating such high cost? Why do we want to go to another country to do this? And part of it is it's because of the resources that are in China that go into the chips, right? Um, that's uh, the semiconductor chips. I mean, that's a big reason why it, it's cheaper to do it there because of the natural resources that they have in China compared to here. But we are moving some of that already to Taiwan. Taiwan, we get yeah. a lot of chips from Taiwan. Um, I'm not so sure how much the Chips Act, which was the big bill that they passed, and you know, it's supposed to bring more semiconductors to the United States. Uh, the more and more we read into this, though, where are we going to get a lot of those parts? China. Yeah. It's still not going to be you know American-made chips. And, and I'll be interested to see how much demand it actually increases. This is something else that I'm really, not, I don't know if concerns are right, but I like to talk about is that Keynesian economics has, has infiltrated our thinking about the economy and the roles of government for far too long. Like government cannot stimulate anything except more government. So when it comes yeah. in and tries to say, I'm going to stimulate the chip sector, what are you going to give up? You have to take from somewhere to get something else. And, and, and because there's not free, there's no free money. You know, nothing is free. <laughs> um, right. Have, yeah. have that tattooed on my arm. There's nothing, nothing is free, right? <laughs> Where Except it, for college you, tuition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so if I'm, if I'm going to hand out some, some handouts over here or give tax breaks, and, but I'm not cutting my spending on the other side, then I have to get it from somewhere else. Most of it's going to our national debt, which means yeah. that we are putting all this up, whether it be chips or some of these things that are vital for national interest on the back of, of not today's generation, but future generations that it may not even be necessary or needed because we, we may not even need this stuff. This is just in the moment in time of trying to direct the resources and, and we shouldn't be about directing resources. And so again, I would go back and say, look, if these are vital to our national interests, like the medications where we found out so much was coming from China, is like, what can we do to reduce the regulations in the United States? Get the FDA to stop having so much. The, the patent laws are killing us. Like all this stuff, we are doing it to ourselves and then trying to blame these other countries and then put taxes on it to try to solve a problem. A, a government failure is always worse than any sort of perceived market failure. And so yeah. what the argument here is that we're having a market failure, so we need the government to come in and correct it. And whereas I see it as a government failure, so if you're putting more government in, you're just doubling down on the problem instead of creating market forces um, that will solve it ultimately at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, I think that my biggest concern yeah. for the the state of our economy and kind of like the outlook is from a policy perspective, whenever you give a – you start paying for something. When the government starts paying for something, people then never want the government to stop. That's why they always mm -hmm. put like – you know, the government will say, oh, we're going to pay for this, but it sunsets in 10 years. It never sunsets because mm -hmm. once people become reliant on the government for it, it's really hard to pull it back. And so – my biggest concern is that we have created so many of these things yeah. and there's just so much cost that it's a very unpopular position 
to proactively pull those things back to allow us to continue to grow and to thrive and to prosper. And I, I, my biggest concern is that it's going to have to be reactionary. It's going to be, mm. no, yeah. we, we, we broke it. And now we have to pull it back because we actually have no option. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back a, a couple of things there. I remember uh, Milton Friedman said, nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that's <laughs> what's permanent is temporary yeah. government program. Yeah. It also reminds me of something that Rahm Emanuel um, talked about uh, who he said, don't let a crisis go to waste, which I mean, a lot of other people have said that too, but don't let a crisis go to waste. And usually that crisis in, um, indicates that we need more government to solve the, solve the problem. And, and I think that we need to get back to a situation where the government should be the last resort, not the first resort. I even think about this when I see natural disasters. I mean, every time there's a natural disaster or a tornado or a, a fire, it seems like Texas Governor Greg Abbott is going out there creating a natural disaster to pull down FEMA funding from the federal government, which just makes us more dependent on the federal government. Like, the, why, why shouldn't families and communities and civil society be the first line of defense and government be the last line of defense? Because the more that we grow that dependency, whether it be on uh, natural disasters or on chips or other areas, the more dependent you're going to be on those politicians. And, yeah. and it gives the clout, it gives more power to politicians. And, and I want things from, to be from the bottom up. That, that's really what capitalism is about. Capitalism gets a bad rap. But because they'll say it's crony capitalism and all this other stuff, capitalism is not crony. I, I don't put those two words together. Really what it is is crony corporatism. That's yep. not capitalism. You know, just like socialism and everything else, these are different things. And so we need to make sure that we keep them in their different areas. Um, and so whenever I'm going through and thinking, all right, what's the dependency of our country? I, I really think that I know this is kind of taboo nowadays, especially a lot of the, the leading Republican candidates and everything. But they'll say, look, we can't touch Social Security and Medicare. And, and, and I do not think that we should wait until that crisis happens for us to solve the problem. Um, you, there, there are recent evidence that's out there that look by was the next 10 years, uh, if we don't do something for social security, it's going to be insolvent, meaning that we're not going to be able to pay out as much in intended benefits as, as what people are expecting. Um, it could be a drop of, you know, five, six, $7,000 a year for those individuals who are living off of that. Is that a good situation? Do we want to run up to 2035 or whatever the year is, 2034 and say, okay, now we're going to make the change. Whereas if we could do it pairwise and say, okay, let's make some changes now and do it incrementally, we could get to a situation that would be much better off, not only for America and for taxpayers, but for those individuals we're trying to help. And I think that goes back just real quick, Kyle, is um, to the let people prosper idea that I have is that if we're going to have roles for government, they should be very limited and targeted and help the re people that we're trying to help. Um, one idea that, I, that I've been working on for a while now is what's called empowerment accounts, where basically you streamline the safety net system onto one like debit card, kind of like a Lone Star card. But instead of having like TANF and food stamps and um, housing vouchers and all these different programs that have different eligibility criteria, different bureaucracies um, and everything else, and, and very complicated, very complicated, um, is to streamline them all down into one empowerment account card that these individuals could then use across those same different areas, housing or whatever they want, um, there would still be some rules about what they could buy and purchase with it. But you, you put more power in the hands of people to make their decisions and you reduce the dependency over time to where they could keep any money that's left on their card for when they get off. That'll help reduce mm. some of the fiscal, the, the cliffs, uh, what we call benefits cliffs when they get off. Um, these are types of ideas that I think give more power to the people and give less power to the government. And, and that will really make transformative change for the future of our country, for personal responsibility, individual liberty and, and, and prosperity that we haven't known in, in a very long time. And, and some say, well, you're just gonna leave people on the streets. Like, no, I think we're leaving too many on the streets today, Kyle, where we have high taxes and high regulations that people don't have all the fruits of their labor to help people to go out there and get churches involved and everything else because so much is already going out of our pocket to the government. Yeah. So from your perspective, what are the vital functions of a government where they should collect our taxes? I'm guessing military yeah, is one I, of them. 
Yeah, military is one. National defense, I think, is important. It's very hard to have a private militia. And I think even if we did have a private militia, um, those militias would then grow because the, 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 in the inertia, the innate ability of, for, for people is to overcome, right? And so you put that many people together in a private militia, they'll just want to battle others. And so then they just form a government. So why not just have a national defense and reduce those transaction costs is really what it's about. How do you reduce the transaction costs? The other one is a justice system. I think it is important to have somebody that's a, a third party making the decisions instead of just people fighting it out and killing each other. Whatever, you know, eye for an eye is important, but I think a third party is probably better to, again, reduce the transaction costs that that can create in a system. I, I think that there probably are roles for uh, uh, you know, public goods in a sense of those who are disabled. Uh, you know, how, how do we make sure that they're able to fend for themselves on, on a day-to-day basis? My dad had epilepsy, so I saw him go through a lot of issues. But but other than that, uh, I, you know, I think that there should be very... I think the private sector would do best. And, and, and what would that mean from a federal level? Instead of spending $5 trillion plus a year is what the federal budget is. Yeah, that would be closer to about a trillion dollars. <laughs> so that yeah. means $4 trillion more dollars in people's pockets for today and in the future. Because remember, we're not, we're not funding all this. We're still running up $2 trillion a year in deficits with just future taxes. So that yeah. would put a lot more economic potential in the economy to where we could help each other. We could give charity. We're, we're one of the most charitable countries. No, we are the ch- most charitable countries in the world. Think about how much more money could be in people's pockets to actually target the resources to where they're needed instead of being go through the process of government, bureaucracy, and filtered out all these dollars. I, I think it's about 60 cents of every dollar that you're trying to give to the intended purpose actually goes for that intended purpose. Only 60 cents out of every dollar. What if 100 cents did or, or 90 cents? Uh, I yeah. think that would be a much better system. We'd have more prosperity and human flourishing and, and we, we'd have much def- different dis- uh, discussion you know, here today. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I th- yeah, and I think that whenever I think about it, uh, obviously I think that national defense is important. I, yeah. Uh, and then I, I kind of think about it like on the, on the other side is, okay, well, what about what the, what about whenever there is like some sort of common good that hmm. should be paid for by the government because people equally benefit from whatever that is. So, you know, the, yeah. uh, the fire department, police department it, that, but I do think that that's like why local municipalities, states, you're going to have more efficient use of resources, the closer you get to the dollars actually being spent. Like, yeah, the federal government spending money on anything in my local city makes no sense to me. It just, no. it just, it's just like how much of it's wasted on the drive down here. I mean, that's a yeah. that's a long way to Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you get so many people that are up there, they they lose touch with the reality at home, and, and so they they have some. I mean, yeah, there, there's good intentions. It goes back to Friedman again. I've always come up with some Friedman quotes, but you know, <laughs> don't judge a policy by its intentions, but by its results, is what yeah. Milton Friedman said. And I, I think that's really important. Like, I mean, I, I, I believe a lot of these, most of the politicians get into that position uh, for good reasons and have good intentions to help people and everything else. Um, the problem is that, you know, they kind of go in a different direction when it comes to policy. And, and, and they, they, they also are rent seekers because they have to be reelected. And that changes the dynamics of your thinking compared to what's our boots on the ground of trying to get things done. I think that, you know, nonprofits are really important. The private sector is really important. Uh, you know, profit gets a little bad rap. And I don't know that we should take it that greed is good. Probably not the best way to put it either. But profit and loss are, are really important because profits is telling you what you should be doing more of. Losses are telling what you should be doing less of. And, and if we didn't have those throughout our system, then we would be in a much worse situation. We would be in a situ- situation of dictatorships and communism because basically they're doing whatever the, the top person tells them. They're not able to do from the, the, the organic, what, what, what Frederick Hyatt called the spontaneous order of the marketplace to allow for these resources to go where they're going to be used best. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You're, I could, I could talk to you all day. I mean, I've got. <laughs> I, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna ask you one more question because I've been curious about this one with antitrust laws. Like with mm. with whenever monopolies occur, what is your belief on the value of antitrust laws? Yeah, um, I just wrote a paper actually recently. I can plug that for the Pelican Institute on antitrust nice. and enforcement. Yeah, antitrust and enforcement. And basically it just talks about how the FTC and the Biden administration, Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, um, are taking this to a whole other level. It's a radical approach that doesn't look at the consumer welfare standard, which has been basically the standard now used for antitrust policy for the last half a century, um, where it basically says, look, 
if these mergers or acquisitions are going to take place and the consumer is going to be benefited overall, like their value is greater than the price, whatever the price is going to be, we call consumer uh, surplus, consumer welfare in economics. As long as that's going to be improved, then there's not a problem with this merger and acquisition. So, but a lot of these radicals that are out there now are trying to throw out the consumer welfare standard and say, you know what, that's not enough. We know whether it, this should be uh, is a monopoly, whether or not they have more market power and everything else, and that businesses are the ones that are using their profit motive in order to raise prices. So now we have greed, greed inflation, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that they're the problem. And so if we can just break them up, then there won't be any more inflation. Now that gets inflation all wrong. Inflation comes from Congress spending too much, running up debt, and the Fed printing the money, putting too much money, in the, chasing too few goods. That's really inflation. But in their, their warped view, this is the way they think. Um, and, and so if I take another step back from my free market angle, in the marketplace, a voluntary exchange, I do not believe there are monopolies in the sense that they are reducing consumer welfare. Because if if there happens to be one entity that's providing that good or service, it's because that's what the market wanted. That's what consumers demanded. They really wanted that product or other entities would come up. So that assumes a few things. That assumes that there's not barriers to entry enforced by government, which are usually the case with monopoly uh, things or regulations, taxes, a lot of those things are barriers to entry, which can influence monopolies, which is one reason why, in my view, government is the one that creates monopolies. Utilities, yeah. you can get a lot of the government schools, quote unquote public schools, right? That, that's a form of a monopoly that's created by government, not by the marketplace. Because when the marketplace creates so-called monopoly, that would be a market failure. And so you would need government to come in and correct the market failure through antitrust laws. That's why it was put in place to try to make sure that you didn't have the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and all that back in the day, which we could have a whole nother talk about how they weren't really robber barons, that they were really <laughs> doing something important at the time uh, and that the government was actually creating more of the problem. But I'll digress from that right now. Uh, but, <laughs> as you, but, but as you go through this, I, I think it goes back to a point we were talking about, which maybe loops this all back together, Kyle, about immigration and, ta and um, trade, international trade. What are, what's the institutional framework? That's why I was going back to institutions. Douglas North is another good economist to think about there. But institutions matter. How are we setting up this framework within, quote unquote, big tech that's whether giving them more power or not, is it because of the high taxes? Is it because of the high regulations, the high amount of lawsuits that take place in these areas that keeps other businesses from entering that marketplace? And are they really monopolies whenever there are multiple of them where you can pick and choose Facebook or Twitter or other, other outlets that you want to go to? Um, and, and, you, and you also have consumer sovereignty to say you don't have to use any of them. You could do something else. And, and, and so I think that there's been all this kind of hoopla about big tech censoring and things like that, which I don't like the censoring stuff takes place, but just don't do it. Like, why do we need yeah. the government to step in and think that they're going to make a, a situation better when most everything the government touches makes it worse? Yeah. And so I'm, very, I'm highly skeptical that they're going to make a situation uh, better through antitrust laws. Yeah. Yeah. I always, it, it is funny because I, I think a lot of times big companies really like regulations because they're yes. the ones that are capable of navigating them. They can afford That's right. it. And it's regulatory just capture. It's called regulatory capture is what we, economists and economic nerd talk. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. See? <laughs> regulatory uh, capture. That's right. Awesome. Well, yeah. What are the best ways for our listeners to connect with you and to kind of learn from some of the stuff you're doing? Yeah. Uh, first of all, Kyle, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a great discussion and, and we should have those phone conversations and everything. And um, I think we even have you uh, come on my Let People Prosper show here soon because it'd be good to yes. pick your brain about some of this stuff as well. So your, your audience can then get some more there. Um, but but I you know I'm doing a lot of work on like I said earlier about public policy in a lot of ways. But I do have that Left Field Prosper show that's on YouTube and and everything else. I have a Substack newsletter vanceskin.substack.com. Uh, also my website vanceskin.com where I have links to all of this stuff, which is probably the, the best way. But but I, I'm hoping you know that I can continue to live out my God given calling to let people prosper in whatever way I can for myself for my family, friends, and, and, and others. And, and I'm going to keep working at this. I mean, this is something that's a lifelong endeavor because I don't see that the government is going to give way much. Uh, so we're going to need to keep fighting back for liberty. But I also don't see that, that people are going to be without, without poverty, uh, unfortunately. And so yeah. I, I really want it to be my life's work to continue to find ways to, to help them 
to, to prosper. And that's why I have a lot of you know good folks like yourself on my podcast and, and, and talk about these things. I think they are so important. And there's a lot of podcasts out there. I'm gr- glad that you're talking about all the things that you are on The Immigration Guy because there are key podcasts, key folks that I think need their voices heard. And we live in an extraordinary time. No matter what we talked about today with some of the dire situation with our fiscal situation and you know high levels of poverty and stuff like that, I still would not want to live in any other time than right now. And, and I, I do believe that we are blessed and that we have so much to look forward to. And so let's just, let's keep working at it and, and, and be friendly to one another. And, and I think we need good debates. Just like today, Kyle, you were saying, Hey, I don't necessarily agree with you on all this stuff. And, and, and I think that's great. We need more of these civil discussions to take place for us to have some, some, some really good solutions and, and transformative changes for the future. Well, that was a great discussion with Kyle Farmer of the Immigration Guy podcast. Be sure to go check it out. Leave him a five-star rating. Leave me a five-star rating as we can get this information out to reach the masses. That's what it's really all about. You know, I hope that you'll go to my show notes page, vanskin.substack.com or my website, vanskin.com to find out more information. But until next time, let people prosper. <laughs>